This podcast is brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. Our mission is to accelerate breakthroughs in life-saving cancer research and empower people everywhere to conquer cancer. You can help by donating at conquer.org forward slash podcast. Welcome to Your Stories, a podcast where we hear candid stories from people conquering cancer. I am your host, Dr. Don Dizon. Learning you or someone you love has cancer is among the scariest medical experiences people face. Now, imagine having a doctor who doesn't speak your language. How do you understand what's happening to you, your spouse, or your child? Language barriers can present life-threatening challenges for patients and their families. I am proud and honored to welcome Dr. Jenny Ruiz, a pediatric oncologist and researcher, who is exploring how language, specifically how non-English language, impacts management and outcomes in children with cancer. And she is our guest today. She is also a three-time Conquer Cancer Grants and Awards recipient. Really lovely to have you here, Dr. Ruiz, and congratulations on your success most recently with your Young Investigators Award. Thank you so much, and I'm very happy to be here with you. So, Dr. Reese, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience and let us know your background, you know, college, medical school, residency, the whole thing. Tell us who you are and what you've done. Sure. Um, like you said, I'm Jenny Ruiz. I am a proud first-generation low-income college graduate. So neither of my parents finished high school, and they were both immigrants. Their English language proficiency was limited. I grew up below the poverty level in California. I was extremely fortunate to be in amazing public high schools. And really, I knew that I needed to dedicate myself to my education to really break that cycle of poverty. So I ended up at Columbia University for my bachelor's in biomedical engineering. I got a full ride. I was part of the scholars program. I went back to California to do an AmeriCorps program called City Year in East San Jose, where I worked with elementary school students doing one-on-one tutoring, running after-school programs before going on to med school back at Columbia University in New York City. I stayed there for pediatric residency, and it wasn't until three years ago that I moved to Philadelphia for a pediatric oncology fellowship. Your parents must be incredibly proud. Yes. So I actually just graduated from pediatric oncology fellowship last month that I completed at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I stayed on as faculty um, since my first month as faculty. Congratulations. Thank you. I see a wide spectrum of children with cancer, both in the clinics and in the hospital. In your practice, are you like us in sort of the solid tumor adult cancer space? Oftentimes we divide that between the solid tumors and the liquid tumors. Is that the same in your practice as well? Yeah. So I'm going to be focusing on liquid lymphoma in my career, but right now I, I do see everything in the clinics. That's great. So let me just ask, uh, because this podcast really focuses on your research and language, I think is exceptionally important. How often do you find yourself seeing patients or even the parents of patients whose first language is not English? It's actually very common. I think almost every day, either in the clinic, in the emergency department, in the teens in the hospital, there's always at least one family that English is not the primary language. I'm not surprised because I know that about 16% of U.S. children have at least one parent that has limited English, and I'm definitely seeing that. And I understand that when you were young, this this was something that impacted you as well. I understand that you acted as a translator between doctors and your cousin while your cousin was in cancer care. 
Can you share more about that experience and how it might have informed your current research? Yeah, I come from a family of immigrants. They immigrated from Mexico, and so Spanish is our primary language growing up. And so my baby cousin was diagnosed with leukemia right around when she turned one year old. And my aunt and uncle had very limited English proficiency. I was in college at that time, but when I would come back to visit family, I would go visit her in the hospital. I could see how language and language barriers could easily affect care and understanding and, and just communication. I sometimes saw my cousin act as an interpreter, which again, is not the ideal way for a family to communicate with their doctor. At the same time, I would also see some physicians who did speak Spanish and were able to communicate medical information to my cousin's family. So I saw both sides. That's interesting. When your cousin, where was um, he or she? She. She. Where was she treated? In the United States or in Mexico? In the United States, in California. So I always wonder, you know, this is an experience if from even my clinical lens where you do see a family and one of them, it's usually a matriarch or a patriarch who has cancer and the, and the, either the siblings or the, or the children insist that they will translate. Even though say, you know, as you know, hospital policies are oftentimes to use a hospital-based translator for multiple reasons. The, the most important being you want to ensure that that translation is accurate and medically sound and not sort of filtered through, say, emotion. How did you manage that with your cousin? Because you had both. You were, in, at that point, you were in college, so you were undergoing an education. But how did you feel in terms of being put in that position of translation for your family member versus having to rely on a translator in the hospital, for example? I had some like uncomfortable feelings about it because all the reasons that you just said, I think ideally it should be a trained certified interpreter acting as that liaison between the family and, and the doctors and the medical team. But I understand not all hospital centers have those resources and, and sometimes they're not available 24 seven in terms of, for example, like in-person interpreters. So sometimes it, it unfortunately does fall on family members, but I, I do think that that's something that the healthcare system can work on improving. We are both from uh, minority backgrounds and certainly culture plays such a huge role in all of this. And I've been certainly struck recently about wanting to understand the culture that's in place for family to insist that they translate rather than use a translator. And certainly, you know, when my grandfather was sick, when my cousin was sick as well, it was important that the family do the translation, that they didn't want to do that. They didn't want an independent person. So I could see that interplay come up. And it, it, it's a point of cultural humility. And so how do you think that sort of informs your work as you study languages? I completely agree in terms of, you know, families come with this huge background of, of different cultures and experiences and languages, and it's not a one-size-fits-all. Every family is unique, and I think it kind of just points to, you know, we really have to be patient-centered and, and get to know our families and our patients because they're not all going to be saying the same thing in terms of, I absolutely want interpreter every single time. I want the same in-person one. I want the phone. I prefer the iPad. You know, there's so many options now. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So when you think about the research you've done already and the research you're embarking on now as an attending a freshly minted one, for sure, what is your hope that you'll be able to bring to these interactions as far as it will impact patient care? I really hope that I can find ways and solutions to facilitate really communication between families who don't necessarily speak English and their medical team and ensure that they feel that their questions are answered, that they feel heard in terms of their concerns and feel comfortable reaching out to the team when things come up to really ensure that these patients have less toxicity and, and improved outcomes and cures, just like any family that speaks English would. I think that's important. Let's shift the conversation a little bit to another part of your work, which is in the social determinants of health. And for the audience, I'll define it broadly, and I would love for you to sort of comment and sort of expand on it. But the social determinants of health include the circumstances in which people are born, in which they live in, and which they work in. And it includes everything from the social, economic, and the physical factors that have a direct impact on health and on healthcare outcomes. Is there anything you want to add to that to sort of give it more flavor? Yeah, I think a key point, you know, is for a lot of historically marginalized populations, these social determinants play a huge role. And oftentimes the healthcare providers are coming from different backgrounds and experiences. They might not be as attuned about these problems. And so it's really important for more research in this area and to really be able to prioritize these populations and essentially prioritizing people that the majority is not look like you or have the same experiences like you to really help them. Yeah, it seems to me like your research is almost bi-directional, isn't it? So you're, you're not only trying to advocate for how language barriers can influence care on the patient side and ultimately their outcomes, but also how these language barriers can serve as almost a source of implicit bias for providers who don't share that same cultural experience. For example, it's not uncommon, and maybe we can talk about this a bit. When we think about offering people clinical trials, the more difficult it is, the less likely it is anyone is going to be offered a trial. Now you take a child with a leukemia. So the child can't consent and cannot understand the clinical trial. So now you have to go to a surrogate decision maker of the parents. So that's a difficulty right there. But then you also add language on top of that. Then all of a sudden you can see how providers who are not used to or not skilled at working with interpreters to not negotiate a clinical trial or even to explain it may choose not to offer that trial. So I'm wondering... How do you feel this research will impact on both sides of that bidirectional relationship? Yeah, I mean, I think they're tied hand in hand. A lot of the advances we've made in pediatric cancer has been because of cooperative clinical trials. But at the same time, we, we need to ensure that the patients that we're recruiting are representative of patients that are getting diagnosed with cancer. So I, I definitely hope that this type of research and in collaborations with others will improve participation in clinical trials. And at the same time, we're, we're improving clinical care outcomes. Yeah. And I think that gets to my next question in terms of, you know, if you think about this in the lens of intersectionality or even the social determinants of health, which, you know, also speak towards that intersectional concept, what does it mean to center the needs of underserved communities in your work, especially 
patients who are multilingual, but whose language may not be English as their first one? I think it means to really reach out to the community and make it community focused and patient focused. And that might mean recruiting bilingual research members to really get to know the community and the culture and ensure that we are asking the right questions that the community members are interested in and then having solutions that would in fact be adopted. That is, you know, some of the work that I do for our cancer center here in Providence is in that community outreach and engagement space. And certainly the impetus, as you know, at CHOP is to have the community engage with major cancer centers, not only to inform the research agenda, but also to ensure that the research results are, trans, you know, are, are going back to the same place. And when I think about your work, it may not be enough to say, send out a newsletter in English. One of the things I've, I've sort of learned is how different communities like to learn new information. And I'm wondering if you can sort of speak to that as well. I think also, like you're saying, different communities, you know, we can't just say, oh, the Latino Hispanic population is all the same. We come from many, many countries. We have different dialects. And like you said, how they learn and absorb information can be different. It can be wanting to just have a conversation face to face. It can be, you know, I want printed material or I want to watch a video or anything. You know, I think that does make it very difficult. So in your work, say you are because I think you're correct, that people learn and absorb information in very different ways. That's a challenge for us in research. You know, so if you take that same information, you can imagine working in a multicultural society like in Philadelphia, having to create different communication materials that speaks towards different audiences. I can see that almost as a barrier to the work that you want to do. So have you thought about how you might implement this for the work that, say, you're doing or the work that your center is doing? I think one of the key things that I've learned, the language we use has to be simple, has to be plain language so that the messages are getting across. And then just how we incorporate that simple, plain language into whatever modality we can figure out next. And I, and I really do think that we're trained to know all these medical terms, all these acronyms and we're often not really trained in how do you communicate simply with no jargon to families, especially when it comes to complicated diagnoses like cancer and the treatment that that entails. And I think, you know, you mentioned something in the very beginning about the study teams and how that can be a source where the outreach can happen, extending your team beyond just English speaking members so that not only can you develop trust in communities, but they can also be the folks that really complete that clinical trial cycle and go back into the communities and let them know what we've learned. I think it's a really important point that you raised. Have you noted any issues regarding workforce? Because we know that with the COVID-19 pandemic, we did a study through Swab Cancer Research Network that like 80% of the research sites are understaffed and for a variety of reasons. But I'm wondering in the work that you're doing, which is so important in language and communication, are you seeing that as a stress point or as a barrier to some of the objectives you might want to accomplish? We definitely are seeing reduced workforce in, in research teams, also in pediatrics. 
it's always, in addition to that being an acute problem with the pandemic, I think it's always been hard to recruit multilingual team members. It definitely needs to be a priority if we really want to make an impact in this research. All right. So let's go into your day-to-day work in your first month. I want you to look back in your first month as an attending. So what is it as a new attending? What do you find you most enjoy about working with kids? The kids are just so happy and so resilient. And more often than not, they have a smile on their face. Despite everything that they're going through, they're just there and, and they can make, just put, a, they put a smile on my face. That's great. You mentioned um, the cooperative groups in pediatrics, and I will bring that shout out to Children's Oncology Group for major strides in improvements in survival for kids with cancer, for sure. When you look back on your training, and now that you're in your first month of attending, what is it that made you really want to focus on improving the care of kids with cancer? I think it's two things. I truly believe that as we're carrying more children with cancer, their diagnosis should not limit their potential as adults and how they live their future lives. And also that we know that there are disparities and inequities in access and in outcomes in pediatric oncology. So that really drives me to try to find solutions to those problems. I'm wondering, given all that we're talking about, can you share maybe a moment where that became something It was like almost this aha moment or a moment of clarity where you realize this is important work. This is the work that I need to do. Is there a story that you could tell about that? I mean, I'm not sure if it's one story or many stories, but I I think in even within my fellowship training, I've seen how minoritized populations, how the language used to describe them and their behaviors is very different from majority white populations. And I do think that that translates into this history in the electronic medical record that's continued and and passed on and forwarded that leads to unfair treatment and not the best outcomes for these patients. Yeah. You know, when I think about the care for patients who are recent immigrants, that is something that I think I'm always drawn back to the sensitivities I would want for my grandmother or my mom who are migrants into this country. And I think boy, if the shoe was on the other foot, I would want the best care for my mom who didn't speak English or my grandmother who didn't speak, or he didn't trust the white doctors. It's a challenge, I think, where we work because so many of our colleagues will never know what that's like. So let's switch this off of the reasons why this is so important to you. Tell me a story about a kid that made you just love what you're doing. Again, also, I have too many stories (laughs) 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 because they're all great, right? (laughs) That's good to know. So for our listeners, it is good to know that a pediatric oncologist has more great stories than that. She's having difficulty picking out just one. I think that says volumes in and of itself. Yeah. I remember early on in my first year in fellowship, I had been following a little toddler for a couple months. And she happened to be having a procedure in the outpatient setting. And I happened to be walking in the hallway after her procedure. She notices me and recognizes me as her doctor and runs up to me and gives me the biggest hug after her procedure. And I'm like, why aren't you barely moving? But she was totally fine. And she was just happy and saying hi to all the people on her medical team. 
that must have been an incredible thing as a you were a fellow at the time yeah to be recognized as someone's doctor i think it's a, it's a very powerful moment you know and i certainly remember when that happened in my fellowship i trained far longer than you did so the other thing that i want to ask you about is that you are involved in the Latinas in Medicine group, and it goes by a hashtag on Twitter, but certainly it is not a social media only, I don't know what do, what do we call it, movement, organization, community, community might be the better word. Can you tell us more about it and why it matters to you? Yeah. So like you said, it's a, it's a Twitter community, family, really promoting, uniting Latinas in any health profession. And what I found amazing about this group. It, it like really allows us to connect with people across the country, across the world, to network, to share our stories, to promote each other, which without this group was not possible before. Like it would have taken so much more work and effort and time. It reminds me of something that I saw recently on Twitter. It was um, a tweet using the hashtag Black in Medicine. And it was someone just saying, hey, I think it was my cousin is a resident in surgery. She's the only black person in the entire faculty or fellowship or residency. Can anyone reach out to her for mentorship? And it was just striking that even today, you could literally be the only black or brown person in your program. Tell me, because I, mean, I could speak about this for, for years, but tell me about your experience of being that one two or maybe even three black or brown people in an entire division. Yeah, I mean, I am the only Latina physician in my division. <laughs> so there you have that. As you probably know, it's it can be very isolating. And those thoughts of imposter syndrome are easy to pop up. And I think one of the beautiful things about the Latinas in medicine and Twitter is that you find all these other people and you realize, you know, I'm not the only one struggling with this and we can support each other. You know, one of the other things that I, your colleague, Narjus Duma, mentions quite a bit, and we've certainly written about it as well as sort of the implicit bias that comes in with being a woman in medicine, a Latina in medicine, Black in medicine, gay in medicine. You know, there's all these things that, again, make you see yourself as other in medicine. But I'm wondering, is there a moment where you experienced those kinds of subtle microaggressions and how was it dealt with and how do you wish it was dealt with? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the most common one has been the woman in medicine. I'm also very petite. So sometimes people are like, you're just a student. <laughs> I've gone into a family's room and I've introduced myself. I'm Dr. Ruiz. I'm your child's doctor. And I've had a mom on the phone being like, oh, the nurse just walked in, even though I had just said, I'm the doctor. That's always complicated because it's not a peer that's the source of that bias, just the look of you. Clearly, you're not a doctor. And I've always struggled, you know, because not surprisingly, I've been in that scenario before, not since my hair turned gray. But, you know, being mistaken for the medical student. But it is a struggle of how to correct the situation and maintain a patient-doctor relationship. So what is your advice to, to how best to manage that kind of scenario? 
for that particular example that I just gave, I just, again, reintroduced myself. Again, I'm, I'm Dr. Ruiz. I'm here to get a history and examine your kid. And I was the only part of the, the team member there. But I think if there's other members of, around, having allies also be there like, oh, you mean Dr. Ruiz, the attending or the senior resident or whatever it is, be there and also support you and be an ally. You know, one of the things I remember about pediatrics, and this is even during residency, there was an informality to the way pediatric physicians interacted with their patients. There was, you know, because a two-year-old's not going to care if you're a doctor or not. They don't know who you are. You have a white coat. That's all they really care about. So it was never uncommon for men or women attendings to introduce themselves by their first names. It's like, hi, I'm Don Dizon. You can call me Don. And I'm wondering, what is your take on that aspect of it? Does it reinforce biases? Do you think it has any role in that? I think it gets complicated with minoritized physicians. I have always consciously and purposely have introduced myself as Dr. Ruiz because I know from the literature that their first thought will not be that I am their doctor as a woman, as a Latina. So I always say Dr. Ruiz. Obviously, in cancer care, these relationships are months, years, and maybe later on we start using first names. But as I'm meeting new patients or I'm in the hospital on service with patients I don't normally interact with, regularly interact with, I do introduce myself as Dr. Ruiz. You know, giving our listeners that space to claim something that you've earned, I think is really important. You know, you talked a bit about the imposter syndrome, and certainly that's something that, you know, minoritized physicians have spoken about and have talked about. And part of, I think, moving beyond it is to claim that title that we work so hard for, even if everyone around you is like, oh, just call me, you know, by my first name, being strong enough to say, yes, and I am Dr. Dizon, you know, I think is a really empowering thing. So kudos to you for doing that. And I hopefully everyone that's listening will take that as a, an empowering moment. You've earned the right to use the title and you should provide the permission to others if they do not need to call you by that. So I think that's really quite powerful. So enough of the kudos to you, Dr. Ruiz. In 2013, you received a Conquer Cancer Medical Student Rotation Award. In 2018, you received a Conquer Cancer Resident Travel Award. And then like we introduced in 2022, you received the Young Investigators Award. Can you tell our listeners about the opportunities that you accessed with the earlier awards and what they did to help open new experiences up for you? Yeah. So the medical student research rotation, I received that right when I was going from a first-year medical student to second-year medical student. And it was funding to do my first clinical oncology research project. So prior to that, I had no experience in, in cancer research. So it was a wonderful opportunity. I was able to work in a busy clinic recruiting patients and families to participate in qualitative research. And I had excellent mentorship. And I, I truly am extremely grateful for, for that experience and that mentorship that really continued my journey into cancer medicine and cancer research. And so that, that was the medical student rotation. And then as a resident, uh, the Resident Travel Award, 
really allowed me to attend the ASCO annual meeting without having to worry about funding and just being able to meet the other RTA awardees and feel like I found a community of like-minded people, be inspired by their goals and their interests. And also being able to network with national leaders in, in cancer research was phenomenal. So I think those two really prepared me well in terms of getting exposure early on in my career, establishing that I, I truly do have a passion for this and setting me up to be a successful applicant for the Young Investigator Award. And tell us about your, your YAA. Yeah, so I'm looking into septic shock and bacteremia outcomes, specifically with a focus of uh, limited English proficiency patients, whether or not there's a difference in outcomes compared to English proficient families. So I hope that this will be my first study looking into language and really building upon that with future studies focused more on interventions and community approaches. All right, Dr. Ruiz, final question for you. How are you conquering cancer? I am conquering cancer by being a Latina pediatric oncologist and by focusing my research on improving access and care and outcomes for marginalized populations. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. For doctor-approved patient information, please visit cancer.net, which is supported in part by Conquer Cancer donors. Conquer Cancer is creating a world where cancer is prevented or cured and every survivor is healthy. You can help by donating now at conquer.org forward slash podcast. The participants of this podcast report no conflicts of interest relevant to this podcast. Full disclosures can be found on the episode page on conquer.org. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Guest statements on the podcast do not express the opinions of ASCO. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement.